This is John 7. It's a long chapter, um, and even this section is long. But I'm going to just read the second half of John 7. So we'll start at verse 25. You can follow along here. This is the ESV. If you have it on your phone and you want to follow along there and take notes, if you have a, like a real, not a real Bible, if you have a physical Bible <laughs> that you'd like to use, then feel free to use that. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and it's about three quarters of the way through the big book. All right. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord, but he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You'll seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now when they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first hearing, giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Amen. All right. So we're in John chapter 7. That means we looked at um, six chapters before this. And much of John to this point has been very intimate. Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. He's meeting with a Samaritan woman alone at a well. His first miracle is not a grand thing that he's doing in front of others, but at Cana in a small little wedding ceremony. Even when he heals in Jerusalem, he's calling somebody out of the crowd and saying, hey, 
let's have a quick chat about this little sin problem that you have. Maybe you can fix it. A lot of it has been very, very intimate, very, very close. But gradually, as we move on through the book, it's starting to get more and more crowded. And in John chapter 6, Jesus did this miracle where he fed 5,000 people. He said this very controversial thing about drinking his blood. And now we slowly start to see division. And in John 7, we are in the midst of a crowd. And just like any crowd, it can be very, very disorienting. So when I was a kid, I used to live in this uh, small town called Langhorn, Pennsylvania. And we used to go to the airport to, you know, pick up family members and stuff like that. And one time we went to the airport. Everybody's looking up at the signs or whatever. So I look up at the signs. And then I um, follow somebody who I think is my mom or my dad. And then I follow them for like five or ten minutes. And then I realize, oh, that's not my mom or my dad. That's just another handsome Asian man. So um, my parents are running around looking for me. And then finally they found me. And I go, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. When I was 12, we went to Disney World. And at Disney World, a magical thing happens at nighttime every day, <laughs> which is the fireworks go off. And there's thousands of people gathered together. And stupidly, I did the same thing. I'm looking at the fireworks, not paying attention to where my family is. And for 20 minutes, I, I don't know where anybody is. My mom is running around. My mom told me later that my youngest sister was crying. and said, oh, no, he's going to be lost on Magic Mountain forever. <laughs> We're never going to find him ever, ever again. And then eventually we found each other. And so the next family vacation, my mom said she put us all on leashes when we went to <laughs> Smoky Mountain. I don't remember that part, but that's what she says. So when you're in a crowd, it can be disorienting because you don't know what's going on or where people are at. And in John 7, we're in this crowded place. And if you look through all the people that are mentioned, you have this. You have the people of Jerusalem. You have the authorities. You have Pharisees. You have officers. You have chief priests. You have crowd. You have the other part of the crowd. And you have Nicodemus. And each of them has a slightly different opinion about who Jesus is. And it makes you think, well, who is he actually? Why is he so controversial? How come people can't come to a consensus? And not only do who people think he is, but what should I think about who he is based off of what these other people are saying? And as you read through John 7 very carefully, you find that above the din of the crowd, Jesus speaks, and like a bolt of lightning that flashes across a gray sky, you hear the truth, and suddenly you are encountering a man that you'd never met before. And so that's what we're going to talk about as we look at today's passage. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this together. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time. And we want to meet with you, and of course that's what we want to do, but it's so hard to get past all of the things that we bring into this room, our busyness, our own ideas, um, our disappointments, our hurts, and all these other things. But we thank you that we don't come into this place um, trying to win the lottery and hoping that today you might show up. You are always here. You are always wanting to meet with us. You are always willing to speak to us. And I just pray that our hearts, the guards that we've set up over it, would go away. And that today we'd be able to hear your voice clearly and come face to face with our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what's the context of this? Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's there for something called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is something that usually starts in the month of October, and it's one of the biggest feasts that Jewish people celebrate and required everybody to come to Jerusalem and hang out at the temple for about a week. 
And when you look at the Old Testament uh, justifications for this, there's two. One is it's supposed to celebrate the harvest. So it's supposed to say, yes, we got all of this wonderful wheat, all of this wonderful fruit. Let us celebrate. And the second thing is it's supposed to celebrate the exodus. Yes, we've been delivered from Pharaoh in the desert, like we read about at the beginning of the call to worship. We used to dwell in these little houses. So the Jewish people would set up these little houses for them to dwell in as a reminder that God provides and that God delivers. It's supposed to be one of the most joyous and wonderful celebrations that people have, but that contrasts sharply with how Jesus relates to the place of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, for Jesus, is not a place of celebration, but a place of hostility. Ever since John chapter 2, when he flipped the tables over in the temple and said, you've turned this place into a den of robbers, or when he healed a man in John chapter 5 on the Sabbath, people had slowly turned against Jesus and Jerusalem was no longer a place where people were joyous, but for Jesus, it was a place of hostility. So he has to figure out how am I going to go there in a way that does me the most of what I'm trying to do. And so what he does is in John chapter seven, he arrives under the radar and he's trying not to make too big of a splash. And gradually he starts to emerge and teach. And where we pick up in John chapter 7 is where he's teaching, and all of a sudden these chirpy, chirpy, chirpy little comments start to come in. And it's strange because we live in a world filled with comments. Whenever we're going to go to a restaurant, we check our whatever app, and we see how many stars it has, and we look at the most recent reviews. And the most famous or the most fun uh, set of comments that I've ever read is from Amazon on Haribo sugar-free gummy bears. If you've ever read this, it's like 15 years old now, but this thing has been liked over like 30,000 times. And um, the sugar-free part does something not so nice to your stomach. And so these reviews uh, describe it in great detail. I will not read them for you. I'll just read one part. Um, This guy took them for his finals. Uh, He's like, I'm so hungry. The school store had a two-for-one sale. So he grabbed a pack, ate a whole pack of (laughs) sugar-free gummies before his final. And by the time he got to question 14, this is what he writes. I kept fighting through my exam, clenching with all my might. (laughs) Beads of sweat began rolling down my neck. Suddenly, a loud, gurgling war cry came from my belly, and the entire class lifted their heads. And then from there, it gets worse and worse and worse. (laughs) And so when you read the comments like that, you go, oh, I will never eat Haribo sugar-free gummy bears again in my life. So not only do we live in a world of comments, we live in a world of pseudo-celebrities. And we're used to like TV and like movie celebrities. So I remember one of our friends when they first moved to New York, they walk outside their apartment building and Matt Damon is filming a movie there. She comes face to face with Matt Damon and she starts crying. And then uh, later on, we're like, do you, are you like a big fan of his? She's like, no, not really. But she was just so overwhelmed. And then this is how I know I'm getting old. We were at a Brooklyn Nets game uh, a couple like last year. And then these teenage boys in front of us were like, and talking about people sitting courtside, and they recognize a man named Aiden Ross. I said, Aiden Ross? Who's Aiden Ross? So I had to Google him. Apparently, he's famous for being a streamer on Twitch. I was like, what's Twitch? <laughs> I've never even heard of this stuff. So now we live in this world where it's not just TV and movies and singers, but these other platforms that garner millions and millions of people are around. And I hate to, um, you know... Uh, point out my own people but Koreans are the, the the best in terms of like Korean fandom so in my mom's house she got all these pictures of us she hung them up on the wall so there's me as like a kid there's Sarah my sister and my brother and our, the grandkids and in the corner there's a picture of a singer 
And I said, Mom, who is this singer? She goes, that's my favorite singer of all time. I was like, oh, okay, what's his name? I, I can't remember his name, but her and her friends bought tickets to go to L.A. and watch him at a concert and come back. And I was like, is this guy ever going to get married? She goes, oh, no, 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 they can't do that. The fans would turn on them. So Korean fandom is uh, crazy. And some of my high school students who are into, I, it's not BTS or whatever anymore, whoever it is. So they, they have like birthday cafes. So when it's a star's birthday, they rent out a whole cafe and they sell merchandise with their face on it. They said they do something called crowdfunding, which is they get all the fans to raise money, and then they buy subway advertisements and they put their face on it. I don't. I tried the researches. I don't know if this is true, but apparently um, they crowdfunded enough money to pay the Empire State Building to change the colors to fix uh, to make it for a Korean Idol's uh, birthday colors or something like that. So Koreans like love fandom, but. All that to say, we live in a world of comments, we live in a world of celebrities, and the weird mix that ends up happening is something that sociologists call something a parasocial relationship, which is basically a one-sided relationship. And we feel like we know these people so well, and we know everything about them and all this other kind of stuff, but they don't know who we are <laughs> and or what's going on. And so it creates this illusion of closeness. And so when we look at the comments about Jesus in this passage and what the crowd is saying, what do we end up discovering? On the plus side, people say, oh, this might be the prophet or this might be the Christ. But on the negative side, people are saying, oh, he's anti-Jewish. He's going to go spend some time with the Greeks. Oh, he's not from Bethlehem. He's from Galilee, that place. Oh, and even people are seeking to arrest him. And even some people are seeking to kill him. And if you heard about a guy and you found out that the authorities are seeking to arrest him and the authorities are seeking to kill him and that he hates his own people and all this other kind of stuff, you might think like, I don't know what to make of this person. Is this person trustworthy or not? So the crowd is clearly divided about this person, Jesus. And when we start digging into the negative comments, what we find is the people who are against Jesus, the reasons have less to do with Jesus and more to do with themselves. In verses 41 and verse 52, twice it mentions the fact that he is from Galilee. And they assumed, at least according to this passage, that Christ, when he would appear, the Messiah, so Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, when the Messiah would appear, nobody would know where he would come from, but he would appear like a flash of lightning. But everybody knew, this guy is from Galilee. Now Galilee is 90 miles north of Jerusalem. Between Jerusalem and Galilee is Samaria. And Galilee is away from the temple, away from the Pharisees, away from the political establishment. So it's this kind of backwater. And people are like, there's no way the Messiah could come from a place like that. I mean, we're from the Northeast, so we can probably say this if we're honest. We have a certain bias towards the South. And if we hear certain people talk a certain way, we go, oh, that makes me feel a certain way. And the same thing happened here except for it was South and North, right? So they were like, oh, he's from the North. Oh, these are gross. So I don't want to believe in him. And then the closer that we get, we see that we always have these biases about where people come from, and it informs our decision. Every time I get a new doctor, I look at where they went to school. <laughs> it has nothing to do with like their healing. Really. I mean, it has something to do with it, but you kind of check. Anytime you're hiring somebody new at work, you kind of look at where did they work before, because that pedigree is supposed to tell you something. And when you look at what the biases are, the scary thing that you discover is a lot of the biases of the crowd here was based off of Scripture. And you would think, gosh, if anything was supposed to help us understand who the Messiah is, of course, it would be the Bible. And from the negative point of view, the people who said, 
Um, this can't be the Messiah. The reasons, they said, is in verse 41, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. And in verse 52, the Pharisees, check your Bibles. If you check, nothing good ever came out of Galilee. No way the Messiah is going to come out of Galilee. Even the positive ones, they are looking at it and saying, this has to be the prophet. Just like in Deuteronomy 18, it says a new prophet is coming. This has to be the offspring of David. Just like 2 Samuel 7 says, a David offspring will reign on the throne forever. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Bethlehem will be the place that the Messiah is born from. So all of these people are looking at this pseudo-celebrity Jesus and they're using scripture in their own type of ways to say, who is this person? And some of them are not reading scripture properly, but they're putting their own biases first and scripture is no longer doing what it should be doing, which is helping us to understand who Jesus is, but it's actually doing the exact opposite, which is blinding people from encountering the person who's right in front of their face. And this shows us the power of bias. Sometimes it keeps you from even seeing the truth that's right in front of your face. So like 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, um, there was a movie that came out called The Namesake. And it was based off a book uh, called The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri, who's a British-American author, uh, but sh her family is Indian. So my friend, this is how long ago this story was, my friend was uh, in Blockbuster, and he heard a couple walking around trying to figure out what movie to watch, and the wife picks up this movie, right? And then she um, says, how about this movie? It's uh, by uh, Jhumpa Lahiri. Uh, she's Indian. The husband looks at it and goes, Namasake? Well, what is this, right? So because she was Indian, uh, she said, oh, this must be like an Indian word, Namasake. But the title of the movie is Namesake, right? So what happens is the power of bias keeps you from seeing the truth that's right in front of your face. I have a name that's like a very a normal name. I mean, wh whatever, it's a name. Uh, Jen has a name that's also a normal name, but when she goes to Starbucks, sometimes they call her name. They say, Chin, Chin, <laughs> right? Her name is Jen, not Chin, right? But the power of bias makes it so that you can't even see the person that's right in front of your face and understand them. Same thing happens even today with Jesus. If you check, uh, so I'm still, uh, for some reason, they made some kind of clerical error, but I'm still registered as a PhD student at Columbia, so I have full access to their entire libraries till 2025, even though I graduated. From, so if you need a book, let me know. But if you search Jesus and look up the last two years' worth of things that are published, here are some of the books that were published. Jesus, A Life in Class Conflict. Jesus and Revolution. The American Jesus. The Republican Jesus. A Bloke Jesus. Jesus, the Epic Hero. Jesus, the Refugee. The Post-Traumatic Jesus. And all of these things show that we are trying to make Jesus fit into our mold of what we think he should be. And even today, we have these preconceived ideas about who Jesus is. And when the Pharisees and the Jews and the crowds are trying to look at Jesus, we can like think about it like this. They're goldfish who are trapped in this bowl. And the world that they know is this bowl. The furthest they can see is Galilee, maybe to the end of the Greek dispersion. But Jesus is not a goldfish. He's a whale. And he comes into their midst talking about waves and oceans and currents and glaciers. And they're like, yeah, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Because all they know is this tiny little bowl. And the same thing happens to us. If we do not allow Jesus to come face to face with us as he is, but instead keep thinking from our little goldfish bowls, we will never really encounter him. And this is something that happened to me when I was in fifth grade. In fifth grade, I went to a retreat, and as typical of these type of retreats, on the third night, there was a dramatic <laughs> message, and I came to understand who Jesus was. And I said, wow, this is great. Jesus loves me. And then the guy said, um, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to surrender your life to Jesus 
So if you want to do that, raise your hand. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to do that. I want to marry who I want to marry. I want to work where I want to work. I want to do the things that I want to do. I want to listen to the music I want to listen to. And so for 10 years, I had that type of posture. Jesus, I understand you. Jesus, I know you. But there's certain things that I want to do. I'm also a teacher. And when you talk to students, I teach at a Christian school, they're also starting to struggle with their faith from these ages, like 6th grade to 11th grade. And this is something that we should all check ourselves with, especially if we have kids. But they'll say something like, you know, my parents are Christian. I know that they love me. I know that they love Jesus. But sometimes I can't tell what they want more. Do they want me to have better faith or do they want me to have better grades? Right? And so they go, I don't understand how those things match. As they get older, they learn more about the world. They say, God is a God of love. But when you check Christian history and how Christians have treated people in the past, I can't make sense of this. How can God be a loving God if we can't do these things? And so what we're coming to see is if we always relate to Jesus through a crowd, through somebody else's perspective, looking at something else, we're never going to really see him for who he is. And this is very true of the Pharisees and the crowd that responded negatively to Jesus. If they had looked just a little bit closer and asked Jesus, they would have discovered a truth that we all already know, which is Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? He was only raised in Galilee. They just had to ask, and he would have said, no, I did come from that town. If they checked Isaiah 9, that they would see that there is a prophecy about Galilee, and it says that the Messiah would make glorious the way of sea, Galilee of the nations. People in darkness have suddenly seen a great light. They were using scripture, but they were not using it correctly. They were using it to support their own view of the world and keeping themselves from really encountering Christ for who he was. But what about the people who responded positively? What are they thinking? One of the things that they did that the other people didn't was that they started to meet Jesus based off of what he was actually doing. By this point in the Gospel of John, he had healed somebody who had been lying on the ground for 38 years. He had fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He had walked on water, and they had recognized this is not just any other person, but this is somebody special. But I think the more important thing that they did was they heard what Jesus had to say. The crowd was saying this, they were saying that, they were saying this, they were saying that. But Jesus spoke in verse 37 and 39. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And when they heard this, they said, this must be the Christ. Now, upon a first reading, you go, there's nothing special about these verses. But as you look at them, it's very strange. Jesus says, scripture has this saying. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And when you try to look for where that quote comes from, you will not find it in any Old Testament book. So what is it that Jesus is doing? Let me explain it like this. In the 1960s, there was a technological and cultural change that shifted the way music was made forever. They started sampling. And most people point to 1971 John Congo's He's Gonna Step on You Again or Burundi Black by Michelle. Bernholk as the first version of people sampling. And sampling is where you take old snippets of song, change the pitch, and then you rearrange them to create something new. And so that's why today you can have, well, today, like 20 years ago, you can have Jay-Z's Hard Knock Life or Two Box Changes. That's when I got off the boat. But um, you have people sampling and creating something new out of it. And what we see Jesus doing here is he is sampling from Scripture to create something new. What does he say again? He goes, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And he is referencing Moses drawing water out of a rock. He is referencing 
David and the Psalms celebrating this moment where people are starting to drink from the rock. He is referencing Solomon's Proverbs where he says the righteous man's words are like deep waters. He's referencing Zechariah and Ezekiel talking about how streams of living water will flow from the temple. And when you look at these references again, it's exactly who they wanted Jesus to be. Moses, David, Solomon, the temple. And he takes references from all four of these people, puts them together in a new way and says, I'm a better leader than Moses. I'm a greater king than David. I am more powerful in channeling God's presence than this very temple. And so when people heard it, they said, oh, I understand. Right? So he's not quoting directly from scripture, but he's pulling pieces out of it and putting it in a way that finally clicks and people go, wow, this is amazing. And so Jesus' word cut like lightning and it says, if you believe, rivers of living water will flow from your heart. But the amazing thing about this is he does not do this then suddenly say, therefore, I am the Messiah, bow down and worship me. He could have easily won the popularity contest of the crowd, but how does he start this saying where people suddenly go, wow, this must be the Messiah. He says, if anyone thirsts, if any of you are thirsty. He did not come for the crowd. He came for people who were thirsty. So as we close, just a couple things I wanted to say. There's so many different ways that we can approach Jesus, right? We can listen to the crowd, and a lot of us probably came to faith that way. We listened to our parents, or we listened to our teachers and said, oh, um, this is what they say. He's our Savior. He's a Son of God. He's a Lamb of God. He's an example. He's a teacher. Um, all these things are true, but if you only have those names in your head, they stay these empty categories. Maybe some of us, we try to make Jesus fit into our own expectations and say, Jesus, I will follow you, but first you've got to follow me here, then you've got to follow me here, then you've got to get my kids into here, and then after all of that, maybe we can get along and I can love you. Jesus is saying that is not the way that you do it. The only way to really approach Jesus is to silence the voices of the crowd and say, God, this is who I am, this is who you are, and when we do that long enough, we'll see in our hearts is this thirst. God, I need you, and I believe you're the only one that can help me. What does he say? If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Believe in me, and rivers of living water will flow out of your heart. So with that, let's pray and let's reflect. So um, as we get ready for communion, um, I think it's the perfect Sunday for uh, something like this. It's one thing to know a lot about uh, Jesus and to sing um, about Jesus. It's another thing to know Jesus. It's another thing to sing to Jesus. When is the last time you heard him speak to you and say, hey, call you by name. I love you. I care for you. I'm here to provide for you. We can come to church and hear these other people's thoughts about him. We can listen to a podcast and hear other people's thoughts about him. But when have we quieted the voice of the crowd and just stood face to face with him and said, God, I'm thirsty and I believe you can fill me. And that is where we really encounter somebody. We go, wow, no category I have fits this person. You are something completely beyond. And when we do that, we start to feel living water flowing through us. I know it's hard because like um, life is crazy. And there's so many things that we want. And it's so confusing. But Jesus' voice is like lightning across the sky. When he speaks, he can cut right to your heart. And the only thing we have to do is just quiet our hearts long enough to say, God, I want to hear your voice. I want to know you. 
and he'll speak to us. So let's just pause like that for a little bit. And again, this is the perfect Sunday for this because in our hands we'll hold the symbol of Jesus' broken body. In our hands we'll hold a symbol of his cup of the covenant. And just like we encounter him here, we can encounter him in our hearts. So let's pray like that for a bit, and then um, we'll go into a time of communion.